0: Hello, paranormal, fantasy, and mystery fans, and welcome to Amber A. Logan's The Secret Garden of Yanagi Inn. My name is MC, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each episode of Amber A. Logan's The Secret Garden of Yanagi Inn, It's a fantastical and slightly spooky retelling of the children's classic, The Secret Garden, set in a creepy inn outside Kyoto, Japan. If you were offered the chance to photograph an eerie old inn, would you take it? You would if you were Marie Leno, an American photographer grieving her mother's recent death. She spent most of her childhood there anyway, so how bad could it be, right? Well, when she arrives at Yanagi Inn, It's nothing like she remembers. The once thriving resort is now run down and largely abandoned. Not to mention at night she can hear creepy sounds no one else seems to hear. Got the chills yet? The Secret Garden of Yanagi Inn is an unputdownable story with mysterious gothic vibes. But, just like the beloved story it's inspired by, it is also about the beauty and healing power of nature. It truly is a book to live in. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to The Secret Garden of Yanagi Inn now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com, or wherever books are sold. The first two episodes of every book can always be found on CamCat Unwrapped, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. So subscribe to Camcat Unwrapped, and if you love this story, you can support the author by buying their audiobook. The story opens with Marie at her mother's deathbed. I know, it's a bit of a sad start, but trust me, this is what pushes Marie to make the decision to leave everything behind and accept a grant to photograph the mysterious, yet familiar, Yanagi Inn located in far-off Japan. And so, our journey through this wondrous tale begins.
1: CAMCAT Publishing presents The Secret Garden of Yanagi Inn by Amber A. Logan, narrated by Emily Ellett. To all the brilliantly flawed and complex women in my life. Chapter 1. December 24th, Chicago, Illinois. I'd always been told hospitals were a place to heal and rest, but my mother's hospital room was an assault on the senses. The stench of decaying flowers and cloying cherry disinfectant clung to my skin, invaded my nose. A wave of nausea swept over me. I couldn't breathe, couldn't think. I need to get some air. I rose to my feet before Rissa could object, although I knew she wouldn't. My sister had been trying to convince me all day to leave Mom's hospital room, to go get some real food or take a walk. Sure, Amari, go ahead. I'll stay with Mom. Rissa nodded without looking up, her short blonde curls bobbing. She leaned back in her bedside chair, still absorbed in her book. I glanced at Mom, now a papery, skeletal version of the woman she once was. But at least she was peaceful, sleeping. As soon as I stepped through the hospital's sliding glass doors, the blast of cold air sent an involuntary shiver through my body. I pulled my hair back into a ponytail, knowing the chill wouldn't last, that five minutes in I'd be sweating, my muscles warmed. Maybe the fact I already wore running shoes was fate, or maybe I'd just gotten lazy, too exhausted after so many long days split between the gallery and the hospital to care about my appearance. Either way, I'd dressed in sweats that morning and I was going for a run, damn it. I turned north and ran down the nearly deserted sidewalk. Streetlights were wrapped with faux greenery and twinkling lights, and last week's snowstorm had left lingering mountains of gray snow on the edge of parking lots. The morning air stung my throat, but the cold was a welcome change from the stifling hospital room. I ran for most of an hour my pace too fast to fall into a comfortable groove. But the burn in my muscles and the emptiness of my mind renewed me. No worrying about the doctor's cryptic prognoses, about visits from the counselor who peeked in occasionally to see how we were doing. I could just run. It was me and the cold air and the thud, thud, thud of my feet on the pavement. And all was right in the world. But it wasn't. This was a dream, and reality waited for me back in that suffocating room. Rissa would be wanting her mid-morning coffee, and I, being the good big sister that I was, ordered two drinks from the Starbucks around the corner, so she didn't have to settle for the unbranded kiosk in the hospital's lobby. I expected to return a hero, sweaty but triumphant, brandishing two grande peppermint lattes as I opened Mom's door. But as I carried the drinks down the hospital corridor, I saw mom's door was already open. My hands trembled. I sped up. Sounds of movement and talking inside the room and crying. Rissa was crying. I broke into a run, burning my hands as peppermint latte sloshed over them onto the pristine polished floor. Rissa was still in her chair, sobbing behind both hands. Her book dropped at her feet. Two hospice nurses stood at the foot of Mom's bed, speaking in quiet, respectful tones. Mom didn't look any different, looked for all the world like she was still sleeping. But the whirring, dripping sounds had stopped. They'd turned off all the machines. Only Frank Sinatra's crooning, silent night drifted down the hall from a distant room. Mom had died, and I'd missed it. Chapter Two Two Months Later, En Route to Japan The dimmed cabin lights brightened to a rosy glow, mimicking a sunrise, though it was late evening in Kyoto. I wiped the drool off my lip with the back of my hand, glanced at the passengers on either side of me. The elderly woman to my right was awake, watching Roman Holiday on her seat back screen mom's favorite movie, one I'd watched with her three times in the hospital alone. The smartly dressed blonde woman on my left had her laptop out on her tray table. Her stockinged feet rested on carry-on luggage with the same floral print as the weekender bag mom had picked up in England years ago. An optimistically small bag for her hospital stay. The woman was probably working, her nails on the keys tick-tick-ticked away, knocking on the door to my brain, reminding me I should check my work email. I reached for the bag between my feet. And Rissa would need to be reminded of where I'd left Ginkgo's pills. She needed to know he wouldn't take them without sticking the pills inside butter. She needed to know Stop it, Mari. I pictured my little sister smirking at me, arms crossed, standing next to my white puff ball of a dog. Relax, I've got this. I leaned back in my seat, rhythmically twisting the too-loose ring on my middle finger. The flight attendant pushed a drink cart down the aisle. She wore a fitted top and pencil skirt, a jaunty kerchief with the Japan Airlines red crane logo tied around her neck. Green tea? Coffee? Her voice was quiet, soothing. I raised my hand, Coffee would be amazing, thank you. She smiled a practiced smile, set a small cup on her metal tray, and poured the coffee from a carafe. The two women on either side of me asked for green tea. Even over the aroma of my coffee, I could smell their tea. I'd missed it. The slightly bitter scent. The warmth of it. A scent from my childhood. Japan. I'm really going back. This is real. This is now. I took a sip of the coffee, hissing as it stung my tongue. A sharp, cheap flavor, like the instant crap Thad used to buy when he'd finished off my good stuff. I should have asked for tea. Ladies and gentlemen, we will be landing at Kansai International Airport in approximately half an hour. We anticipate a slightly early arrival. Local time is 7.14 p.m. My cardigan was damp with sleep sweat. I'd take it off, but I was afraid of elbowing the ladies next to me. So I made do with pulling my hair back into a ponytail and hitting the button for my personal fan. It whirred to life, but the clicking annoyed me, and I turned it back off. In the row behind me, someone sneezed. What the hell was I doing, running away like this? Abandoning my sister? My now ex-boyfriend? maybe even my job. Tears welled in my eyes, and I fought them back, staring at the screen in front of me, at the image of the tiny airplane and the dashed line trek it had made across the Pacific Ocean. Even if Rissa had made all the arrangements and basically shoved me out the door, it felt wrong to just leave, even if it was for only four weeks. Deep breaths, Mari, deep breaths. At first, the timing of the grant had seemed fortuitous, if a bit rushed. But the closer I got to Japan, the more reality set in. And the vague details of the NASJ grant paperwork felt more and more inadequate. Photograph an old, isolated Japanese inn for posterity's sake? It wasn't much to go on. Had I brought the right camera lenses? Would four weeks be enough time? It seemed an eternity to me right now, but I'd never been asked to document an entire estate, never even received a grant before. I was an artist, not a documentarian. At least I used to be an artist. Maybe I should have splurged for the upgraded camera bag with better padding. I pictured the Roman Holiday woman next to me opening the overhead compartment and my camera bag tumbling out onto the floor contents may have shifted during flight. Could she even reach the overhead compartment? She was a tiny Japanese woman, probably in her seventies. I snuck a glance at her, but mom was sitting next to me. I froze, my entire body turning numb. Mom, leaning back in her seat, was watching the movie with a slight smile on her lips. Her platinum blonde hair was tied back in a loose ponytail, but tufts had fallen out and were dusting her shoulders, her blouse like dead leaves. She sipped her green tea. I struggled for air. The sweat dotting my skin turned cold, clammy. No, no, no. I'm just tired. Didn't get enough sleep. I closed my eyes, inhaled deep, gasping breaths. Mandarins. I smelled freshly peeled mandarins. Are you all right, honey? My eyes flew open. CEO woman on my left, with her slim laptop and flowered bag, stared at me. Her eyes were wide with concern. I shot a glance to my right. The little grandmother had returned and was happily watching her movie, oblivious to my distress. Am I all right? The dreaded question. Did she mean, do I need medical attention? Or was it more of the existential all-right we all seem to strive for but never quite manage? I smiled at the woman, responded with the only reasonable lie one can give to that question. I'm fine. Deep breaths, Mari. Deep breaths. The flight attendant in her perfect pillbox hat and red bandana came by again, this time with white gloves and a plastic trash bag. I handed her my half-empty cup of coffee with an apologetic smile. I should have asked for tea. Like an orderly river, we flowed off the plane and down the jet bridge, then spilled out into the brightly lit airport. I squinted, one hand carrying my camera bag, the other pulling my square carry-on luggage. The stop at the bathroom with its private floor-to-ceiling stall doors the polite customs workers, the wait for baggage. It was all a blur. A foggy-headed, clips and phrases of Japanese and English blurring together kind of chaos. But I was an ignorant American, the tall, brown-haired white lady looking like a confused tourist. So, of course, I was funneled through with utter politeness and a tolerance I was grateful for, yet also resented. I didn't need their help. I say that, but when I finally stepped out into the arrivals area and scanned the crowd for a sign or a screen or a hand-scrawled note featuring Marissa Lennox, I found none. My heart leapt into my throat for a moment, but I swallowed it back down. No worries, the plane had landed a few minutes early. Maybe my ride was running late. Maybe there was a miscommunication about the terminal. Maybe... I scanned the line of men in suits and white gloves again, watching for a glimmer of recognition in their alert faces. But each one's eyes slid past me to the next arriving passenger. I didn't match their profiles. Of course I didn't. I found a bench nearby where I could keep one eye on the sliding glass doors and the other on my oversized suitcase and assorted bags but no drivers came rushing in embarrassingly late to pick up the unfortunate foreign woman. I considered buying a coffee at the kiosk or indulging in my love of Japanese vending machines, but decided against it. I didn't relish shoving all my luggage into a tiny bathroom stall if I had to pee before I left. And so I waited. A handful of older businessmen passed by, glanced surreptitiously my way, chattering amongst themselves with the self-assuredness of men who assume I can't understand them. One laughed and nodded. I caught a few of their words in passing. Foreigner, tall, Chelsea Clinton. I chuckled and raised an eyebrow. Maybe Chelsea Clinton on her worst day. My frizzy brown hair with graying roots was already sneaking out of its scrunchie to spill across my oily face. I tucked a strand of hair behind my ear and turned on my phone, careful to keep it in airplane mode. Damn it. I hadn't thought I'd need an international plan. I pulled up the email from Ogura Junko at the Yanagi Inn. No phone number, not even in the email signature. I leaned my head back against the hard wall, practiced the breathing technique Risa had taught me in the hospital months ago. Breathe in. One, two, three... Breathe out, one, two, three. I double-checked the email, noted the Inn's street address. If no one came to pick me up, I could just step outside, find a cab, and give them Yanagi Inn's address, though the long ride from the airport to the remote inn would probably cost a fortune. I wasn't helpless, after all. But still, having no one to meet me, not a good omen. Half an hour had passed before I thought to check the printout of the grant paperwork Rissa had sent me. I dug through my bags until I found it tucked in the pocket beside my laptop. I balanced the computer on my lap and smoothed the sheet of printer paper across its flat top. I hadn't bothered printing the front page, only a few paragraphs from the middle, with highlighted parts I'd thought relevant. No contact info for the purpose of documenting, via artistic photography and for the sake of posterity, the property known hereafter as Yanagi Inn. lennox son, I glanced up sharply, nearly toppling the laptop. A sixty-something woman with graying, short-cropped hair stood over me. She wore a simple indigo kimono with a wide, cream-colored obi belt and a grandmotherly air of silent disapproval. Ogura-san? For a moment, she just towered over me, scrutinizing my face as if searching for something. Then she gave a barely discernible nod and turned toward the glass doors. I scrambled, shoving the printout and my laptop back into their bag. I didn't even have time to pull out my jacket. Wait, I called after her, frustration creeping into my voice as I grabbed the handles of my various bags and rolling luggage. It seemed like every one of the airport's many patrons turned and stared at me. I flushed and scrambled after Ogura, the only person in the building who hadn't bothered acknowledging my cry. I tripped out of the automatic doors, following the old woman into the brisk night air. She was surprisingly quick in her traditional wooden sandals, weaving between travelers toward a slick black sedan waiting at the curb, its lights flashing. A driver in a black suit and white gloves hopped out of the car and started loading my bags into the spacious trunk. I thanked him, my cramped arms lightening with every bag removed from my care. Ogura climbed into the passenger seat before the final bag was stored in the trunk, so the driver opened the door to the back and I slipped inside, grateful to sink into the soft leather interior. It's dark, I thought vaguely for both the car's tinted windows and the sky outside were inky, seductive. And as soon as I set down my camera bag, clicked my seat belt, and rested my head against the cold window beside me, I was out. Chapter 3 Someone was whispering. I opened my eyes, lifted my head off the window glass, Lights and large overhead signs flickered past at regular intervals, and the car purred like we were creeping down a freshly poured driveway. Must be on a highway. Ogura was in the front seat, chatting with the driver in hushed tones. Though her voice was soft, I caught snippets, enough to get the gist of her one-sided conversation about the hassles of picking up ignorant gaijin women. I sat up straighter, Spoke up, in Japanese, just loud enough I was sure both parties could hear me. It must have been troublesome to drive all the way out to the airport to get me. I apologize for the inconvenience. Silence. Ogura didn't reply, but she inclined her head very slightly, an acknowledgement of my statement. The driver remained silent. Perhaps I should have held back the fact I speak Japanese. I stared out the window, processing the flashing of headlights, businesses, and homes as they blurred past. How much longer is the drive, I asked. Another 40 minutes, Ogura answered grudgingly, as if I had asked her to sew on a button the moment she was heading out the door for an important meeting. I see. I had no idea how long we'd been on the road already. I turned my attention to my camera bag, taking the opportunity to unzip each compartment and check the contents inside. The lenses I held up to passing flashes of light seemed whole, undamaged. Excuse me, I began again. Do you know what I'll be asked to photograph at Yanagi Inn? Ogura twisted her body just enough she could stare silently at me in the intermittent flashes of light. For the grant... I'm supposed to be documenting Yanagi in, but the grant didn't provide many details. Ogura and the driver exchanged a glance. Then she shifted back around in her seat. No one tells me anything, she muttered so softly I wasn't sure I was meant to hear. I leaned my head against the window again, silently counting the seconds between each flash of passing light until the gentle rocking of the car lulled me back to sleep. I jolted awake when the car came to a stop after its long, silent drive. The two front doors closed with solid thuds, but I sat alone in the dark for a moment longer, groggy and disoriented. The car jostled as the driver unloaded my bags from the trunk, and Ogura's cold figure disappeared inside the inn, I grabbed my camera bag and scrambled out of the car. The moment I stepped out into the night, the cold air hit me like a slap to the face. I'd been wrong to think that surviving Chicago winters would make everything else feel warm by comparison, but at least this cold came with an invigorating crispness found only in areas far from airports and population density. It reminded me of camping. I spun in a slow circle. No streetlights or storefronts or neighbors interrupted my view of the black night. I breathed in deeply until a shiver racked my body. The building in front of me was traditional, wooden, with a single-story peaked roof. The structure itself was almost entirely obscured by overgrown wayward bushes, as if nature itself was bent on swallowing the property whole. The only illumination, save for the pallid moonlight, came from a worn red paper lantern hanging from the covered entrance, shedding its feeble light on walls that were corroded and peeling, as if made of aging parchment. I was reminded of an art exhibit I'd seen years ago. The gallery's walls had been covered with large, unsettling photographs of small-town haunted houses— the kind of properties that children mention only in whispers and that spawn urban legends this facade was so forsaken and so vastly different from the grand entrance way i had envisioned that i began to wonder whether there had been a mistake but then i saw it a battered wooden sign hanging by the front doors carved with the name yanagi inn and my stomach sank i was in the right place The driver was standing beside me, luggage in hand, waiting. I ducked my head in apology. What was I apologizing for? And followed him down the short path to the inn's entrance. The granite walkway was lined with rounded black stones, the rock beds so infested by weeds I feared stepping off the path lest they reach out to trip me. There were no signs of life or movement. No other sounds besides our own hollow footsteps as we approached the inn. Inside, all was silent and still. We walked through the sparse lobby with its musty scent and smattering of chairs that looked to be from the 1970s. We passed an unmanned front desk with a worn leather guest book on the counter and a wall of framed newspaper reviews behind it. We only paused to remove our shoes, where the tiled floors of the lobby stepped up to a raised level of tatami matting. The hallways were dimly lit, and the dry scent of dust and heating elements permeated the air. No one spoke. I followed the driver in socked feet, and he dragged my luggage through the narrow halls, following Ogura, although I couldn't see her. The silence was unnerving accustomed as I was to the near-constant commotion of living in a South Loop Chicago high-rise with thin walls and energetic neighbors. But this silence wasn't the quiet found in relaxing vacation spots. It was more like being trapped in a jar with a lid dampening all outside noise, a muted, deadened soundlessness, which made me tread lightly so I wouldn't be the monster to disrupt it. I half expected to turn the corner and encounter the creepy twin girls from The Shining. I shuddered. Why had I let that convince me to watch that movie? After a few turns, we came to an abrupt stop and found Orgura standing in front of an open door. The driver placed my luggage inside, bowed, and disappeared down the hall before I had a chance to properly thank him. I was loath to break the silence anyways. A teenaged maid, dressed in a paler blue version of Ogura's kimono, was bustling about the room. She had pushed aside a low table laden with small covered bowls, and was laying out a futon and bedding on the tatami matting. Yuna-chan, Ogura broke the silence with a stern tone. Lennox-san would like to retire now. Yuna spun around, apparently unaware that she had company, her long ponytail slipped over her shoulder as she bowed. Good evening, lennox son," she said in heavily accented English. I glanced over my shoulder. Ogura had already disappeared down the hall. Oh, you can call me Mari, I replied softly in Japanese. A smile of relief spread across Yuna's round, youthful face as she straightened. You speak Japanese? She spoke in a slight dialect one I didn't recognize. I returned her smile, though I'm sure it looked tired, strained. I spent a lot of my childhood here, and then I went on to study Japanese in college. Yuna's brow furrowed slightly as she took in my frizzy light brown hair and hazel eyes. Forgive me for being blunt, but you're not half Japanese, right? I chuckled and waved a hand in front of my face. No, My family lived outside Yokohama because my father was an American expat working for Toshiba. I set my camera bag on the floor, rolled my shoulders to relieve the strain. I went to an international school, but my parents refused to live in an expat haven, so we lived in a normal neighborhood, had Japanese friends. Oh, why did you move back to America? I froze. Did I really want to get into all that right now, with a complete stranger no less? I looked at my watch, hoping maybe the girl would take the hint. Well, my parents separated and Yuna chan. The dark specter of Ogura reappeared in the doorway. I'm sure our guest would like to retire for the evening. Good God, yes, thank you. I never thought I'd be relieved to see Ogura again. Of course, Yuna flushed, and she hurried to arrange the bedding. What time would you like me to bring breakfast? I don't even know what time it is now, I said with a sigh. I'm sure my sleep schedule will be off. How about nine? I heard a quiet, tisk sound behind me. I turned, but Ogura was gone. Yuna nodded, either ignoring or not noticing Ogura's disdain. She showed me the note card with Wi Fi information, then lifted the lids off the bowls on the table to reveal a variety of individually wrapped rice crackers, and I realized with a pang to my heart, mandarins. I'm sorry we didn't have a meal ready for you. The kitchen was already shut down. I walked Yuna to the door. No worries, I certainly understand. My apologies for arriving so late. I hope I haven't disturbed any other guests. I was reminded of the eerie silence of the dark hallways I'd walked down. Were there any other guests? Oh, no need to worry about that. Yuna waved a hand in front of her face and chuckled. Well, good night, Mari-san. She winked and left the room, sliding the door closed behind her. I sank into the floor chair beside the table. She seemed like a nice girl, and it was good to have a friendly face here in this foreboding environment. But I had no more energy left to maintain a pleasant facade. I picked up a mandarin, but then replaced it in the bowl. Their presence was just a coincidence, but it still unnerved me. Instead, I unwrapped a large rice cracker and enjoyed a savory, if slightly stale, bite. I let my gaze roam the room. Why did a teenager even work in a dilapidated place like this? A low table with a scuffed black top and two matching floor chairs, each with a threadbare red cushion. A single futon mattress with old-fashioned floral bedding laid out on the tatami floor. A standing paper lamp beside it several sliding doors leading to a private bathroom, a closet, and presumably out to a veranda. The room's only decorations were a scroll painted with stylized kanji and a vase of fresh pine branches, red winter berries, and bright white chrysanthemums. At least the flowers were fresh and new. The space felt more like some forsaken grandmother's house than the esteemed Rokon I'd envisioned, but at least it was clean. After a quick stop in the bathroom, with its disappointingly regular western toilet, I stripped off the cardigan and jeans I'd been wearing for God knows how many hours and stared in the mirror. Bags under my eyes, my hair a stringy mess, my face greasy, too angular, Haggard. I looked like shit. If only I could blame it all on international travel. Too tired for a shower, I threw on pajamas and switched off the shoji paper lamp. When I fluffed down on the futon, it emitted a faint floral scent, just as you'd expect at a grandmother's house. The mattress was firm. Perfect, really. The kind of bed I'd always wanted to sleep on when we lived in Japan. But Rissa and I had both slept in frilly, pink, princess-themed canopy beds, which Rissa loved, but I didn't. My body was heavy, sluggish, but my mind wouldn't stop whirling. I was in Japan again after so many years. I would wake up tomorrow in a strange bed with new surroundings, new obligations, new people, and I needed my sleeping pills. But no, Rissa had given me a hard look when she'd found the bottle in my luggage and handed me the bag of melatonin lozenges instead. But I've always hated having something in my mouth when I'm trying to sleep. It feels like an obvious choking hazard, like giving a grape to an active toddler. Whatever. I closed my eyes, practiced my breathing exercises again, Breathe in, one, two, three. Breathe out, one, two, three. My heart rate slowed. My mind settled. I focused on the silence in the room. Somewhere, a clock tick ticked away the seconds. I had started to drift off into a fuzzy realm filled with the steady hum of airplane engines and the quiet rustle of a hundred passengers shifting in uncomfortable seats, when another sound invaded my mind. A low, mournful keening. It sounded like a far-off wounded animal, a whining dog. This was an isolated place. Could there be coyotes? My eyes opened slowly were there even coyotes in Japan? I held my breath, listened with ears attuned to the eerie distant sound. No, it wasn't a howl. Was someone crying? Mom, I was a child again, lying in my princess canopy bed, pillow pressed against my ears to block out the sound, a whimper in the matching bed against the far wall. Rissa must have heard it too. Go to sleep, Rissa, I whispered, and she fell silent. But the weeping from our mother's room continued. It's not mom, Mari. I squeezed my eyes shut. My thoughts flew, perhaps rashly, to the young maid. As I strained to hear the whimpers filtering through the thin walls of my room, I clenched my jaw to keep my own emotions in check. I'd spent too many nights balanced on the brink of inconsolable tears not to relate. Yet, what would a young girl like una for she couldn't be older than 16 or 17, be doing in a place like this so late at night? Did she live here? I opened my eyes again, stared at the dark ceiling somewhere above me, Maybe the cries really weren't human. A fox? Some kind of bird? Or maybe they were just in my mind. Childhood memories, emotional projections, or premonitions. Damn it, where were my sleeping pills when I needed them? I squeezed my eyes closed, tried to shut off my mind but the words Rissa whispered to me when she'd hugged me goodbye at the airport kept cycling through my brain. It's what mom would have wanted. Oh, how I wished I knew if that was true. Chapter Four You need to get out more, Mari. Mom set a cup of coffee in front of me on the kitchen table. She bustled around, closing cabinets and wiping off counters before joining me. I noticed her mug had a chamomile tea bag instead of coffee. I get out plenty. I don't mean gallery events or client meetings. I mean get out there, see the world, live life. Even though I drank it black, I stirred my coffee with a miniature spoon, clanking it against the sides of the mug. Mom, if this is about me not wanting children- No, honey, nothing like that. She sighed, wiped her hands on her apron. Mom looked tired. Her long, white blonde hair, usually perfectly styled, was now unkempt, like she'd just woken up. It was almost noon. Is everything okay, Mom? Are you feeling all right? I'm fine, sweetie. I just worry about you. You live for your work, and I know you're passionate about it, but sometimes you need to have passion for other things. So this is a Thad thing, I frowned, my voice flat. She'd never taken to Thad, even after he'd come over every weekend to shovel her driveway. No, darling. I just want to see you happy, that's all. She reached for a mandarin from the bowl in the center of the table, mindlessly peeled it with her orange-tinged fingernails. Who says I'm not happy? I dropped the spoon with a clink. We stared at each other across the small table, the dishwasher humming and sloshing in the background. Why did she bother running the dishwasher? There'd only been a handful of dirty dishes. A 58-year-old woman living alone certainly doesn't eat much did mom look thinner than usual? Mari, I won't be around forever. I just want to know you're on a good path. She twisted her silver ring around her finger over and over again, like she did when she was nervous about something. She hadn't eaten any of her mandarin. I took a sip of my coffee, forcing myself not to wince at the temperature. Mom, I said, setting the cup down on its saucer what is this really about? Mom sighed. I just don't want you to have any regrets, my angel. Don't be like me. When I awoke, the room was still dark, the air heavy and stifling. I lay motionless, only my eyes flicking around the room, seeking familiar shapes in the shadows. Only slowly did my memories of the previous day return. Japan, the inn. At home, I always slept with the fan on, even in the winter. And without it, my own breathing made the room humid, suffocating. Each breath told me I was in a closed jar, slowly extracting the oxygen. I crawled to the low table and found my phone. 4 a.m., Una and breakfast wouldn't come for hours. Maybe I should go for a jog? Rissa had somehow convinced me to bring my running shoes, though I hadn't used them in months, as if somehow the change of scenery would restore my former strength and stamina overnight. I took a shower instead. As I put on the inn's light blue yukata and tied the belt around my waist, I studied myself in the bathroom mirror. The yukata was made for a shorter woman, and the whole ensemble made me acutely aware of how the bones in my shoulders jutted out, how tight I had to cinch the belt. What would Risa say if she saw me like this? Nothing but a scaffolding of bone wrapped in Japanese cloth. I'd gotten by with bulky sweaters back home, but winter clothes would only work for so long, even in Chicago. I twisted the ring on my middle finger, so loose it spun freely. I leaned toward the mirror. At least my hair was clean, my face washed. I stared into my own tired eyes. You can do this, Mari. Then I went back into the main room, switched off the lamp, and crawled back into bed. Time passed. The room was pitch black, the air thick and warm, too warm. I kicked away the thick comforter, inhaled a heavy, oppressive breath. Mari-chan. My eyes opened to the darkness. Had someone called me? It had been quiet, a distant whisper, but... No, I'm just tired, stressed, jet-lagged. Go to sleep, I screamed internally, squeezing my eyes shut. But then, far off, echoing down the black hallways outside my door, the whimpering again, a plaintive, broken sound. My ears strained. Was it animal or human? As if compelled, I rose to my feet. I slipped on the worn house slippers by the door, and then, with a deep breath, slid open the door to the hall. Silence. The corridor was deserted the darkness weighty with the stagnant stillness of last night. Hell, it was last night still. What on earth was I doing? I placed one slippered foot out in the hall, slipped and barely caught myself. A puddle? There hadn't been water in the corridor last night. Must be a vent, leaking condensation, I told myself. I shifted my weight from foot to foot my heart fluttering in my chest like a hummingbird. Before me lay two choices. Retreat inside my room and go back to sleep like a sane person, or take another step out into the hall and follow the mysterious sound. There was no way I'd be able to fall back asleep. I stepped into the hall, slid the door closed behind me. Yuna had said I didn't need to worry about waking other guests. Was I the only person staying at Yanagi Inn? It was February, after all. It had to be the slow season. Or maybe there were guests in another wing? I hadn't gotten a good look at the layout when I arrived. For all I knew, there were a myriad of wings spiraling like spokes from the main building, each with a yuna to cater to them. But no... Something told me this Ryokan's design was more helter-skelter, more like the Winchester mansion, constructed without plan over the years by some mad architect to house the countless spirits of those murdered by the family's rifles. I crept down the dark corridor, one hand brushing the wall. God, I hoped I wasn't the only one staying here. That'd be a bit too much like The Shining for comfort. Something about this corridor didn't feel like the one I'd walked down last night. The air was musty and undisturbed, like a locked attic. Maybe I'd come from the other direction. I stopped, closed my eyes to reorient. Something hummed in the air. It wasn't electric exactly, but it also wasn't murmurs or running water or any other normal sounds. Just an emanation reverberating in the hallway. Unseen waves, ultraviolet, gamma, some invisible radiation of life, or something akin to life. The pulsing waves raised the hairs along my skin. I took a slow step backward, some animal instinct taking over my rational mind. But then, up ahead down the hall. A door slid open, sending a sudden beam of light into the darkness. For a mad moment, my body tensed to flee back from once it came, all manner of irrational boogeymen flooding my imagination. But some vestige of rationality rooted my feet to the floor. A dark figure stepped into the hall. My heart seized. Then the figure turned toward me, Ogura-san, My tense shoulders sagged with relief, but she flinched when she caught sight of me, her hand flying to her chest. I must have scared the crap out of her too, an unexpected kaijin materializing from an impossibly dark corridor. Lennox, son, she began in a stern voice. It is too early for you to be roaming the halls, disturbing others. Return to your room. I was transported to my childhood, to kneeling on the hard floor in front of the Japanese auntie my parents paid to watch over little Rissa and me when they still went out on dates. I couldn't recall her face, but I remembered her voice. She wasn't ill-tempered, but she was stern. And when she asked a question, have you already eaten? Or did your mother say you could watch television? It always felt like an accusation. Like she was judging rather than asking. I'd always felt compelled to lie, even when I had nothing to hide. The memories stirred up old, disjointed emotions within me. I opened my mouth, closed it, opened it again. Then I bobbed my head and spun on my heel, knocking off one of my slippers in the process. I scooped it off the ground and speed walked back down the hall as fast as I could with one slipper on. How dare that woman speak to me like I was a child? I smacked the slipper against the wall, making a satisfying whap in the stillness. And I let her do it. Why didn't I just tell her I was out for a walk, but would certainly be respectful? Now she'd never take me seriously. I stopped, threw the slipper on the floor, and slid my foot back into it. No, The next time I saw her, I'd just act cool and calm, in control of the situation. We would both chalk up my meek behavior to jet lag. I slid open my own door and flopped down in the floor chair without bothering to turn on the lamp. The worn surface of the table was cool, and I laid my head upon it like I used to when I was a child and would come home upset from this or that at school. Mom would be waiting for me in the kitchen, a plate of red bean mochi in hand. She'd listen, stroke my hair, and coax me into eating the chewy rice cakes. And before I knew it, we'd be laughing and joking, and I'd have forgotten all about my problems for a few minutes. I lifted my head. My gaze landed on the bowl of mandarins. Then I stared at the empty chair across the table, imagining, for a moment, the dark outline of my mother sitting there, My heart knotted inside my chest. In that moment, I would have given anything to have Mom sit down across from me with a plate of store-bought sweets. Or Rissa. Or hell, even Thad. Okay, maybe not Thad, but a familiar face, a few gentle words. Anything but this, cornered and alone with a stern Ogura-san roaming the dark halls outside. I felt trapped. Like a mouse in a cage with a hungry cat outside ready to pounce. My gaze roamed the near complete darkness of the room, the unfamiliar lumps and shapes offering no comfort. I was in a strange place on the other side of the world, in a country I thought I'd never return to. Why had I accepted the grant so readily? I laid my head back down on my arms, fought back the tears by scrunching my eyes as tight as I could. Breathe, Mari, breathe. Sleep soon overtook me. Chapter 5 Yuna arrived hours later, knocking quietly on my door. I sat upright and grabbed my phone in a pretense of having been awake and waiting instead of having fallen asleep at the table. Come in, I called. The aroma of hot coffee and buttered toast sent my stomach growling, and I flashed a weak grin at Yuna. She set down a large tray and arranged plates on the low table in front of me. Slices of thick white toast with jams and marmalade, a small bowl of fluffy scrambled eggs that still looked a bit runny, an incongruous green salad with a single red cherry tomato on top. The Western foods looked out of place on the traditional Japanese dishware. I fought to keep the frown off my face. I hadn't realized how much I'd been craving traditional Japanese food. Were other guests getting steaming rice, miso soup, grilled local fish? If there were any other guests. Yuna finished off the table arrangement with a small vase containing a bright red poppy and poured me a cup of coffee from the carafe. I hope you slept well? I inhaled long and deep before I answered. As well as expected, I ran a hand over my sleep-must hair. At least I'd taken a shower earlier. The events from the early morning rushed back to me. I didn't relish encountering Ogura-san again today. Is it all right if I take a photo? I gestured with my phone toward the breakfast dishes. Of course, go right ahead. Yuna laughed and backed away from the table. I adjusted the salad bowl and glass of orange juice to capture the light just so, and snapped photos from different angles. Yuna looked over my shoulder. Those pictures are amazing. You're a great photographer. I smiled, though the compliment grated my pride. These pics were barely Instagram-worthy. When was the last time I'd created my own art instead of just displaying other people's work? These photos are just to make my sister jealous. My real camera is over there. I gestured toward my black bag in the corner of the room. Oh, are you a professional? Eunice's face lit up. I've always wanted to be a photographer. Do you have Instagram? I have an account, but I'm sure it's nothing like yours. I nodded and snapped one more shot, a close-up of the glistening red tomato. Yeah, I'm here to photograph the inn. I paused, turned to look at her. Actually, do you know who I should talk to about the grant? Ogura-san didn't seem to know any details last night. Grant? Yuna frowned. The NASJ Photography Grant, you know, to document the inn. Yuna's brow furrowed. "'Well, if it's business-related, probably the owner. She's not here, though.' Yuna grabbed the carafe and topped off my coffee, even though I hadn't taken a sip yet. "'Oh, do you know when she'll be in?' Yuna met my gaze for a moment, then glanced down, using a red cloth to wipe up a coffee drip. "'I couldn't really say.' "'I see.' Yuna shrugged. My mother always says, when you're not sure what to do next, just sit back and don't break anything, she chuckled. So why don't you just go explore the grounds? I was itching to get started on my work, but perhaps it would be nice to have a day to just settle in, scope things out. I heard the grounds are beautiful, but there weren't many photos online. Well, the gardens haven't been maintained, but you can tell how lovely everything used to be. Used to be? I recalled the overgrown bushes by the entryway, the worn furniture. What had happened to this inn? Yuna, ignoring my question, crossed the room to the sliding shoji panels along the outside wall and slid one open, revealing a shallow veranda. Two sun-faded rattan chairs and a table faced a wall of sliding glass panels overlooking a semi-fenced private garden. For a moment, I saw a spectral vision of a young couple in their matching yukata, lounging in these chairs back when they were new, sipping their tea and watching the birds hop along the edge of the bamboo fencing, distant furin chimes jingling in the summer breeze. But then the vision was gone and only the old chairs and the cold and closed veranda remained. The sky was overcast and gray, threatening rain. You may not have the best weather today, I'm afraid, Eunice said, looking out the windows like a child hoping rain won't ruin her field trip. Indeed. It wasn't surprising, considering it was still winter, Why the hell did the inn, or the NASJ, or whoever dreamed up this grant, want a photographer to come in February instead of early summer? Or at the peak of autumn foliage? No, I wouldn't find brilliant colors for my photographs. Only death and dormancy. It felt almost like a cruel joke. Yuna, I hope you don't mind me asking but why do you work at this place? Are you even out of school yet? Yuna laughed, hugging the serving tray to her body. Oh, this is just a part-time job. Before school, some evenings and weekends. I'm just on call, really. She smoothed a stray piece of hair that had escaped from her ponytail behind her ear, lowered her eyes. My favorite manga takes place in a ryokan, so I've always wanted to work in one. She was so honest and open, it was hard not to find her endearing. Well, I should probably start eating before things get cold. Thank you, Yuna-chan. I put my hands together and whispered a quiet, Itadakimasu. Of course, Yuna bowed. Enjoy your day, Mari-san. She slid the door closed behind her. As I listened to her soft steps disappearing down the hall, I felt a pang of regret. Why had I sent her away? I poked at the runny scrambled eggs with my fork, alone in the silent room. I took a sip of coffee. At least it was strong, much better than the airplane stuff. Then, feeling pathetic, I pulled out my laptop to keep me company as I ate. Rissa swore she could handle everything at the gallery, but she'd never had to oversee things by herself. I'd always been watching over her shoulder. What if something important had come up while I was on the plane? I scrolled down through a day's worth of emails. It didn't look like the gallery had caught fire just yet. No emails from Thad. Of course, there weren't. But my heart still unexpectedly ached at their absence. There was an email from Rissa. I opened it and smiled as I read my little sister's admonishments. Relax, and enjoy the baths occasionally, for God's sake. Eat some good food, and send me pics. You know I'm jealous. Please take care of yourself. Remember, it's what Mom would have wanted. Rissa, always the cheerleader. Tears welled in my eyes, and I swiped them away with the back of my hand. This was going to be a long four weeks. I clicked reply, but then stopped. What could I say to her? That everything had been a disappointment thus far? No, my response to Rissa could wait. She wouldn't expect anything this morning, or night, or whatever the hell time it was in Chicago. I sighed and ate the tomato from the top of my breakfast salad. I needed to leave the stuffy room to breathe in some fresh air. Searching through the basket where I'd found the yukata and slippers, I found some split tabi socks so I could use the inns wooden geta out into the garden. I lifted my camera out of its travel case, shuddered, and set it back down. When was the last time I'd taken photos, real ones, with my cannon? Not since before Mom's funeral. It had been over a decade since I'd set foot in a church for Grandpa Pete's funeral. That funeral had been upbeat, almost irreverently so, a true celebration of Grandpa's long life. Mom's funeral had been different. Rissa had held my hand, pulled me through the heavy front doors, prompted me to nod and smile politely at the murmured condolences before settling us into a pew in the front row. It wasn't Thad's fault he was out of town, that he couldn't cut the trip short to make it back for mom's funeral, but it stung. Rissa hadn't even asked where he was. My cannon hung around my neck, dark sunglasses filtered my vision. While we waited for the service to begin, I tried to lift the camera to capture the lilies and chrysanthemums adorning the pews, the dancing shadows of stained glass on the white stone floor. My mind had screamed, this matters, Mari. Someday you will need this to remind you of today. But I'd been numb, unable to lift the camera from around my neck, unwilling to remove the concealing sunglasses from my eyes. In the end, I didn't take a single photo of Mom's funeral. I probably would remember the funeral more if I had, but maybe sometimes forgetting is a kindness. You can do this, Murray. It's just a garden. Today could be about exploration, for discovering the best vistas. No need to rush things. I could take a day or two to just discover the space, formulate a plan. Four weeks was more than enough time to gather material for a portfolio. Through the glass, I had a peekaboo view of the larger gardens beyond the bamboo fencing. Shaggy pines, wild-looking bushes hovering over craggy boulders. So haggard, forgotten, melancholy. In my yukata and jean jacket, and wearing my smaller camera bag around my neck, I slipped through the sliding glass doors of my veranda and outside into air so chill, my breath came out in small puffs. I sat down on the edge of the terrace that extended beyond the veranda and slid on the geta sitting on the rock step. The sandals were tight over my socks. I'd visited Japanese gardens before, both in Japan and in various cities around the world. Most of them had been compact, sometimes even squeezed between city blocks, and they had all been meticulously groomed. The bushes trimmed, the grasses snipped, the pathways regularly cleared of debris. So... Despite Yuna's subtle warnings, I wasn't prepared when I stepped around the bamboo fencing of my private courtyard and stopped to take in my first glimpse of Yanagi Inn's gardens. What must have once been a stunning view of intricately manicured bushes, trees, and boulders was now a series of shaggy mounds, half obscured with vines and dead leaves, a testament to the entropy of nature. It didn't help that it was still winter, that no vestigial flowers were blooming or fresh tendrils climbing. The dominant colors were gray-green and murky brown, and the low dark clouds overhead settled over me like a shroud draped across my shoulders. How many gardeners would have to be employed to keep such an estate maintained? And how long had it been since that crew had been in service? This was not the beautiful, tranquil scenery I'd had in mind when Rissa persuaded me to accept the grant. But I was already here, and I had a job to do. I took a deep breath and followed the white gravel path sneaking out in front of me. Yet even with the unkempt, drooping trees and the wild, uncut grass, something about the grounds captivated me. Hints of the garden's former glory were everywhere, in the subtle framing of the view from a granite bench, the perfectly spaced stepping stones across the dry rock stream, the graceful fragility of an old pine tree propped up on a wooden crutch where its ancient, gnarled branches nearly brushed the ground. Yes, there was beauty here, a somber, almost mournful beauty. I wandered on. For all the overgrown remnants from yesteryear, I would occasionally see evidence of recent upkeep and repair. A juniper was skillfully trimmed. A granite water basin had been scooped of leaves and scrubbed clean. While these small spots of beauty were admirable, they were mere drops in a bucket, only serving to highlight the monumental task one would face in restoring the grounds. Mom used to garden just scraggly flowers in pots on the front steps of her townhouse and a smattering of plants in her postage stamp backyard. She preferred herbs she could use in her kitchen or brightly colored pansies which she loved for their cheerfulness rather than their practicality. For the first few weeks of her hospitalization, I'd tried to keep up mom's tiny garden Stopping by her townhouse every two or three days to water or pull out the weeds that inevitably grew. But during the lingering heat of autumn, with my schedule tightening and with me spending more and more time at the hospital, I didn't visit the plants as frequently. And when I did visit, they looked worse and worse. The flowers were withered, the herbs gone to seed or nibbled away by birds or squirrels. Eventually, I stopped coming altogether. I asked Rissa if she could be the one to pick up mom's mail instead, just so I didn't have to see the physical manifestations of my negligence. Thank God mom didn't have any pets. A cold breeze rippled through the shaggy pine trees around me, and they undulated like weary giants. I shivered, pulling my jacket tight across my chest. Every turn on the winding path delivered more and more vistas past their prime, The work of a clear master gardener reduced to disheveled, gray-green plants and pools of water clouded with old leaves. I began to lose track of where I was and where I'd been. Every direction of the snaking gravel paths appeared the same, and I had the sensation of being in the grip of a perpetual labyrinth, in which every turn, every path was leading to the same inevitable center. I turned a corner and encountered the edge of a murky pond. I squatted down and stared into the water, dappled by light raindrops just beginning to fall. A single orange and white koi fish, the length of my forearm, rose out of the muck and opened his mouth, greedily gulping at the air. He was used to being fed, or perhaps old enough to remember being fed by someone long ago. I leaned forward. Oh, how I wished I'd brought a rice cracker to share with this sad creature, and saw my own reflection in the pond. A hole deep inside my chest widened with a wrenching ache. Pond Mari stared at me, judged me. Her face was drained, depleted, a pale shadow of her former self. She was wreckage I didn't have the energy to fix. I wasn't enough. I was never going to be enough. The koi swam away, unsated. At the pond's edge, I sank into the grass, which was too tall for a formal garden, and now damp from the drizzle. The water seeped into my yukata, into my socks inside their sandals. My hair, coated by the fine mist, was already frizzy and tangling. Why was I here? Was it to document the current wild nature of the grounds, or to bring out the hidden hints of the property's glorious past, perhaps in hope of bringing in investors to restore it? My mind returned to the grant printout still shoved in my laptop bag. Or was documenting the property, for the sake of posterity, the same as writing its obituary? I was on the verge of dragging myself to my feet, slogging through the grass back to my lonely room to repack what little I'd removed from my bags, when a distant flash of movement caught my eye. A blur of white. I climbed to my feet, scanned the far edge of the pond. Yes, there. A crane, pure white with flashes of black and red, all elegant and angular, had landed on the water's edge. He was taking slow, careful steps, lifting one impossibly thin leg out of the water at a time, his face ever vigilant. I stood, transfixed in the cold drizzle, wiping strands of wet hair out of my face. Such beauty. And what a stirring symbol for the ruins of this enchanting place, like a lotus flower rising out of muddy waters. My mind began formulating themes and imagery I could use for my eventual portfolio. But why was he here? Didn't those cranes only live up in Hokkaido? The rain tapered off until it was little more than the occasional light drop on the surface of the pond. And the air was sharp and crisp. The lighting soft. My camera. I shifted the bag around to the front of my chest, fumbled with the zippers, My fingers trembled then i closed my eyes took a deep breath relax mari it's all right this is only the first day photos can wait i let the camera bag fall to my side the crane took a few delicate steps along the water's edge then paused one foot in the air in that moment I could have sworn he stared me in the eyes, communing with me. Then he turned, flung out his wings, and after a few powerful steps, thrust himself into the air. I clenched my hands into fists, the moment lost. I tried to track his path across the horizon. He didn't fly very high, so he couldn't be flying far. The crane began floating downward into a landing position but by that point he'd dropped behind the tree line, obscured by the pine trees specifically designed to control the vista. Beautiful, isn't she? A quiet voice struck up behind me and I spun around. A tiny old woman, not just short in stature, but also fine-boned, stood behind me in the grass, She was dressed in a simple brown wrap top and trousers and outdoor sandals. In her hand, she held a small trowel, a basket of sodden leaves in the other. Something about how her smile reflected in the deep wrinkles around her eyes struck a chord deep within me. Oh, the crane is a she, I murmured as I took in the woman's sun-worn appearance. The groundskeeper? Yes, she has a nest not far from here, or at least she used to. The old woman craned her neck as if to catch a view of where the bird had landed. It is rather unusual to have a crane like her in these parts, but then again these gardens are rather special. I see. We stood for a few moments in companionable silence. Then I noticed the old woman was watching me closely. What is your name? She smiled again, but this time her eyes didn't reflect her smile, but rather narrowed as if inspecting my features. Marissa Lennox, but please, you can call me Mari. And you are? She laughed as if it were a silly question. I'm Honda Keiko. Tell me, Lennox-san. Oh, please, just call me Mari. I understood the politeness, but this woman was older than my mother. Older than mom would ever get to be. I swallowed hard. Okay, Mari-san. Why are you here? Ah, another great existential question. But at least this woman wasn't like Ogura-san. These words were not accusatory. They were more curious, probing, more like a priest asking me to search my heart and confess my sins. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm here to photograph Yanagi Inn for the sake of posterity, but I'm not sure. I trailed off, gesturing with one useless hand. I couldn't finish that sentence without being rude. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be recording the sad state of this place, or trying to capture the former tragic beauty now fully gone to seed. She looked me over slowly, from my scraggly hair down to my wet tubby socks, then nodded. I understand. I'd never felt so seen. Her tone hadn't been unkind or dismissive, but rather had a note of, I've seen all I need to see. This must have been the case. For she followed this up with a short bow, looked up at the sky, and then walked away. I watched Honda's departure, her strides unusually long for such a short person. I should have asked about the small improvements she'd been making to the gardens. I should have asked about the fish and if anyone feeds them. A few minutes passed as I stood by the pond, watching the plip-plops of individual raindrops on the water's surface trying to summon enough energy to take out my camera and at least attempt a few shots of my surreal surroundings. But I wasn't strong enough. Instead, I turned from the pond to trudge back toward my room, just in time for the sky to open, unleashing a deluge of cold, cold rain. I hugged my camera bag to my body, shielding it from the downpour. Why hadn't I brought an umbrella? My socked feet slid and slipped within the wooden sandals as I ran down the gravel paths in what I prayed was the direction of the inn. A crack of thunder sounded so loud it shook the very ground beneath my feet, and I stumbled, nearly fell, only just catching myself on a large boulder, gray-green with slime. I kept moving. My head bowed as I ran. Allowing the icy rain to stream down my face and mix with my warm tears. Chapter six. Kira kira hikaru, osora no hoshi mabataki shite wa minna wo miteru, kira kira hikaru, osora no hoshi mom was singing to me my favorite song a japanese twinkle twinkle little star and she was wiping my brow with a cool damp cloth her ministrations were soothing reassuring and i let myself simply be awash in the comfort of it i opened my eyes to slits not wanting to let her know i was awake and watched her outline in the dimly lit room the movement of her arms and shoulders as she tucked in the blankets around me, heard the gentle sound as she continued the song with a hum. I smiled and opened my eyes a little wider and mom turned toward me. But it wasn't mom. She had no face, just papery, peeling skin where my mother's hazel eyes and crooked nose and warm smile should be. The knot mom leaned over me, Clumps of her blonde hair, loosed from her scalp, fell onto my blankets. Whimpering, weeping noises came from her knot mouth. I tried to scream, but it came out a low moan, an animal noise of fear and aversion, and I scrambled out of my bed and backward across the tatami floor until my hand slipped, and I fell down, down, down. Marisan, how are you feeling? I opened my eyes to find Yuna leaning over me, brows crinkled. Good question. My skin felt damp, clammy, and my heart had an erratic beat. I could remember a rough night of sweating, of tossing and turning, of delirium. But now, as I looked around the room, the fog in my brain lifted a little. And I was hungry. That was probably a good sign. Much better, thank you. I smiled up at her. The room seemed unusually bright and sunny. Yuna had opened up the sliding partitions to expose the veranda with its window-lined wall. I found you on the floor last night. You were delirious with fever, so I helped you into bed. Were you out in that storm? Little mother hen Yuna frowned at me, full of disapproval. I nodded. Memories of stumbling into my room and collapsing in a soggy pile rose in my mind. What time is it? The storm must have passed already. Yuna sank back on her heels and gave me a bit of a smirk. It's seven o'clock in the morning. You slept through the day and night. I sat up. You're kidding me. Nope, I was just coming to see if you were hungry. What was wrong with me? I laid a hand on my growling stomach, my face flushing with warmth. Yeah, I think I'm starving. No problem. I'll bring your breakfast in right away. Yuna smiled and jumped to her feet. I marveled at how well she moved in her tight-fitting kimono. I certainly couldn't do that. When she was gone, I sank back onto the bed. I must have caught something passing through airports or on the plane but I'm sure to Yuna it looked like I got sick from the storm. I chuckled. I was a living trope. I closed my eyes, tried to refocus, but fuzzy night memories were hiding just under the surface. Had I heard weeping again? I frowned, tried to reach out with a tendril of consciousness to dig deeper, but to no avail. Had it been Yuna? I was at a loss for any other explanation. Should I ask her about it? Just say, so have you been crying in the middle of the night? Me too. What's your trigger? No, I couldn't do that to the poor girl. Yuna's soft knock sounded on the door, and she padded into the room carrying her customary tray. For a moment, my heart soared, Thinking she'd brought a resplendent display of the ryokan's finest Japanese breakfast items. But then she knelt and started unloading her dishes white toast, pats of butter, slightly runny eggs. I sighed inwardly but forced a smile. Thanks, Yuna-chan. After breakfast, I pulled out my grant printout, reread the few guidelines I did have for the purposes of documenting, via artistic photography and for the sake of posterity, the property known hereafter as Yanagi Inn, resulting in the aggregation of a completed portfolio for the purposes of public display. Via artistic photography, for the sake of posterity, completed portfolio. The grant paperwork was so vague I wanted to scream but that vagueness also left room for artistic interpretation. I could just capture beautiful images and sort everything out later when I had more information. At least it was a place to start. Besides, when in doubt, I could always follow the advice of Yuna's mother. When you're not sure what to do next, just sit back and don't break anything. It was a plan of sorts. Though I was feeling better, I was still sweaty and gross and badly needed a shower. I did not want to be known as the smelly American. But then, I'd get down to work. My fever was gone, my hair was washed, and my belly was reasonably satiated with a few bites of eggs and grapes. A smile twitched at the corner of my mouth. Maybe today could be a good day. I adjusted the camera bag so it hung at my side, checked to make sure I had the right lens on my cannon. I wasn't going to approach this session with preconceived notions about what I should be photographing. I would let individual landscapes, nature itself, call to me. I stepped out into the fresh morning of a new day and slid on the geta. They were clean. Yona must have wiped off the mud and replaced them on the stone outside. I really needed to thank her for watching over me. The weather was warmer than the day before, and the sun was shining through cottony wisps of clouds. The gardens felt so much more alive than they had yesterday in the dreary rain. I crunched along the gravel, startling the occasional rabbit or small sparrow out of the tall grass on the path's edge. It was early yet and the air still had that crisp dampness which made me feel like I was breathing morning dew deep into my lungs. Yesterday's storm had left new puddles, filled granite basins with murky waters, and formed ruts and channels in the gravel paths. I hopped over the small trenches as if playing hopscotch. A light breeze swept over me smelling of damp earth and teasing the last lingering drops of water off the overhanging pine branches to fall upon my head. I walked without conscious intent, letting my feet take me round winding turns through tunnels of overgrown bushes which snatched at my yukata as I passed, knowing that somehow I would end up where I needed to be. I wasn't surprised when I found myself drawn to the lonely pond where I'd met the koi fish yesterday, where I'd seen the crane. I'd forgotten to bring a rice cracker for the fish. An image of the koi with its hungry lips sent a surprisingly strong pang through the hole deep in my chest. I shook my head, bit the inside of my cheek. It was just a fish. I'd been hoping for grilled fish for breakfast, for God's sake. Yet something about that fish stirred up such intense feelings of guilt it made me want to avoid the pond altogether. Yet I couldn't keep away. When I approached the water, I turned in a slow circle, taking in the view from all directions, the slight mist rising off the pond, the yellowed grass lining the gravel walkway, the old pine tree leaning on its mossy wooden crutch behind me. All was silent. All was still. Every view was like a watercolor painting left out in the rain, the colors running and blending into muddy browns and grays. Nothing called to me. The camera at my side might as well have been a glass paperweight dragging me down, for nothing stirred me. Inside, I was nothing but deadened bones and sinews and organs going through the motions. This Mari was unable to summon enough of an artistic spark, even for the minor task of framing a shot amidst such solemn, subdued beauty. I sank down on a granite bench embraced by bushes, obviously designed to be a resting spot to take in the beauty of the pond and its environs. Beauty, what did I know about beauty? I hadn't made beautiful photography in years. Perhaps I didn't have an eye for sweetness and light anymore. I slid the camera bag from my shoulder and set it beside me on the cold, hard bench. The dampness of the stone seeped through my yukata into my skin, and my body spasmed with an involuntary shiver. What little energy I had left leached out of my body, seeped out through my pores and down through the stone, into the cold ground of this dilapidated estate with its scratchy bushes and foul waters and fish begging me, judging me with their hungry maws. I allowed my shoulders to sink. Entropy, it was swallowing me and it felt so natural. But then a noise, a flutter of wings perhaps, sounded beside me and I lifted my head. There, flying just a few inches above the still surface of the pond, was the white crane with its red and gray head. He, no, she, was Grace Incarnate, with black beady eyes which saw everything, which took me in as well, sitting on my cold bench with my hair draggling in my face. The crane flapped lazily, as if the grand skimming of the pond took little effort, but she kept her head forward, focused, as if she had somewhere to go, somewhere she needed to be. Without thinking, I jumped to my feet, grabbed my camera bag, and followed. I ran along the gravel, though my feet slipped inside their gaita and the camera bag banged against my chest. My breath came in painful, ragged gulps, and I scolded myself for my lack of conditioning. I used to be able to run for miles. The path kept meandering away from the pond, twisting deeper into the bushes and coniferous trees and rock gardens, so covered with debris and moss only the sentinel stones were still visible. But I knew another water vista would eventually appear. I prayed I wouldn't run into Honda, though something told me she'd probably just laugh and point me in the right direction for my wild crane chase running into ogura would be another story. There, a gap in the trees opened up, and I could see the crane still gliding over the water, almost impossibly slow. But then she rose higher into the air, swooping up to then curve down to land on a white stone pillar sticking up out of the water not far away. Maybe I could find a better vantage point and snap a picture. After another curve around another pod of tall, scraggly bushes, there, the view opened before me, a beach of smooth gray stones disappearing into the water. And there, in the middle of the murky water, rose a line of stone pillars. The crane stood upon one, frozen, watching me like a statue on its pedestal. For a moment, the crane and I simply locked gazes. She was still some twenty feet away, but I could see into her beady black eyes, and I knew she could see deep into mine. Something inside me softened then, like a block of ice thawing in the sunshine, and I smiled. I slowly reached down, unzipped my camera bag, and silently removed the lens cap from my cannon. I imperceptibly tilted my camera up until it was at the correct angle to take a shot of the crane without taking my eyes off her. I adjusted the angle again, held the shutter down for a series of shots. Tick, 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 tick. I prayed the sound was quiet enough in the otherwise still air that it wouldn't startle the bird. I shifted my arms to the left slowly, tilted the camera again. Tick, 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 tick. Without warning, the crane spread her white wings and leapt off the pillar. With long, sweeping movements, she flapped up high into the air away from me, legs straight out behind her, like a graceful arrow my eyes couldn't help but follow. The crane flew higher and higher, until she landed across the pond on top of a weeping willow, its slender branches so long and drooping they dipped into the water. I took a few ginger steps out onto the gray beach to peer around the bushes. Oh... My heart began fluttering inside my chest. The tree wasn't on the far side of the pond. It was on an island. The pillars must be remnants of cylindrical piers from an old bridge, one that had been removed but which clearly once led out to the island. My breath caught in my throat. Distant vibrations of a cicada song tickled the edge of my consciousness, and my hands, still clutching my camera, began to tremble. Cicadas? I tore my gaze from the crane to glance around. It was February. There couldn't possibly be cicadas, could there? But then the sound faded, and all was silent once again. I must have imagined it. I slid my feet out of their sandals, pulled off my socks, and stared at the murky water cluttered with the graying remains of duckweed. It couldn't be very deep here, could it? My heart raced as I stepped into the cold, so cold, shallow water, peering around the overgrown bushes to get a more complete view. The island seemed large, larger than entire urban Japanese gardens I'd visited. Though it was difficult to discern its true size, and the edges were so wild with overgrown plants, I could see nothing of its interior. The island clearly hadn't been touched in many, many years. I strained, but couldn't see another access point. Perhaps the old bridge was the only route leading to the Crane's Island, and it had been destroyed. But I needed to get out to that island. I felt a sudden wrenching compulsion pulling me from across the water. I was standing, feet immersed up to my freezing ankles and gazing longingly out over the pond when I heard a rustling noise behind me. I closed my eyes, dread rising inside my chest. Lennox's son. I let out a breath, smoothed down the front of my yukata in a vain attempt at dignity, and slowly turned in the shallow water toward Ogura she looked me over starting at my bedraggled hair moving down to my improperly fastened yukata and finishing at my bare feet standing in the murky pond water her lips were a tight line with deep frown wrinkles on either side her eyes narrow what do you think you're doing i i was just wondering about the island Is there another way to get there? The bridge is out. My voice came out quiet, excruciatingly meek. Perhaps the rules have not been adequately explained. Ogura spoke with a cold authority that shot straight through my skin. You are not to stray from the authorized paths and you are not to go anywhere near that island. Under her stare, I wanted to sink into myself, shrivel up inside my damp yukata until nothing was visible, nothing to judge or criticize. I stared at a moss-covered rock on the side of the path, silent, unmoving. Then, with a quiet rustle, she was gone. I gave the island one more long look then dragged my heavy feet out of the water and back, dripping, into their sandals. The day had barely begun, and I was done, deflated like a pricked water balloon seeping out its last trickle of water. I began the long, plodding walk back to my room. Chapter 7 Once back in the inn and dressed in a fresh, seafoam green yukata, the world felt a bit more manageable. Yuna had explained that Yanagi Inn didn't serve lunch, and that guests generally went on outings during the day or into the village for a midday meal. But if I didn't feel like leaving the property, I could request some onigiri to stave off hunger. I told her that suited me fine. I didn't even know how far it was to the nearest town. So now, left out on my low table, was a large rice ball wrapped in clear plastic, and three packets of soy sauce. Three? Who on earth would use three packets for a single onigiri? It seemed a bit much, even for an ignorant American. I was hungry, so I unwrapped the onigiri. The scent of sour plum filled my senses, and I inhaled deeply. Though I'd never used soy sauce on onigiri in my life, I craved the familiar flavor and picked up one of the sauce packets. After an unsuccessful attempt with my fingernails, I bit the edge with my teeth and tugged, ripping the packet open and spilling its contents on the floor in one terrifically smooth motion. The deep brown liquid seeped into the fibers of the tatami mat. Shit, shit, shit! Shit! I scrambled around, searching for a napkin or cloth to soak up the dark liquid. What I wouldn't pay for a single paper towel. Finding nothing of use in the austere room, I groaned and used the sleeve of my seafoam yukata to dab at the sauce, hoping it would magically suck up all the liquid, leaving the flooring unmarred. It didn't work. Of course it didn't. A deep, brownish splotch the size of a quarter was clearly visible on the otherwise pristine mat. I was doing a bang-up job of being the stupid American. After hiding the incriminating soy sauce packet in the bathroom trash, I returned to my onigiri. As I savored the familiar flavors from my childhood, I thought again about Rissa, about how I still hadn't responded to her email. But what could I say? Rissa didn't need to know how terribly everything was going, how run down and forsaken the glorious Yanagi Inn really was. I opened my laptop, pulled up Rissa's email, and hit reply. She at least needed to know I was still alive. With my hunger satiated and sanity somewhat restored, I unzipped my bag and pulled out my camera, a fierce determination punctuating each movement. Why did I let Ogura-san get to me so? The grant paperwork had said something about a portfolio and a public display of the images. What if I got permission to have an exhibition back home at the gallery, in addition to whatever was done here in Japan? Would that be allowed? A slow smile spread across my face as I pictured a blown-up image of the crane on the gallery's north wall Ikebana vases filled with fresh flowers sitting on the white pedestals I typically used for displaying pottery. I could ask Hamurasan with the Chicago Ikebana Club to help, and I was getting ahead of myself. But the idea of my own photography hanging in the gallery warmed my soul, set my body in motion. I could still salvage today, take beautiful photographs wherever I found inspiration. Yanagi Inn was more than just its gardens, after all. It made sense for me to capture interior photos, too. I lifted the camera with trembling hands, took a deep breath. You can do this, Mari. I snapped a close shot of the blood-red poppy in its tiny vase, then tilted the camera back to check the image. There, I did it. I was taking photos again. And that alone was a big step. Moving slowly around the room, I took shots of the mundane pieces of beauty I found. The wintry Igabana flower display, the sunlight spilling through partially opened shoji screens and across the tatami mats, the worn calligraphy scroll on the wall. I dug through the dark recesses of my brain to recall the stylized symbol. Harmony? Peace? For a brief, perverse moment, I considered photographing the soy sauce stain on the tatami mat, a Rorschach blot on an otherwise unmarred surface. I decided against it. Buoyed by the pockets of beauty I discovered in my own room, I poked my head out into the hallway. Empty, silent, I slipped out of the room, camera in hand. Even at midday, the hallways were dark the doors to adjoining rooms all closed. After a few arbitrary twists and turns, I was surprised to find myself in the front lobby with its 1970s decor. No one was behind the reception desk, so I lifted my camera and began snapping photos. The rattan chairs, the stack of glossy brochures for local restaurants, the framed black-and-white newspaper reviews of the inn from decades past. I snapped a close-up of the brown leather guest book on the counter with its stylized willow tree logo on the front. Then, curiosity got the better of me, and I opened the book, page after page of signatures and dates and comments, and incongruously some childish drawings. I stared at the drawing of a single Japanese maple leaf, traced the lines of red ink with the tip of my finger, Something about the little sketches felt oddly familiar. I pulled back the pages and let them flip through my fingers. The Japanese maple leaf floated down the side of the page like in a flip book. I smiled. On the final page of the sequence, a little cicada, sketched in green, was sitting on the leaf. I marveled at the insect. Someone was quite the little artist. Then a humming, buzzing... The sound of an enormous tree populated with trilling cicadas filled my head. And laughter, children's joyous laughter. I could almost feel the warm sun on my skin, smell the distant wood fire smoke. I closed my eyes to savor the sensations, but the sounds faded away, the memory disappearing as quickly as it had surfaced. At least it had felt like a memory. With trembling hands, I lifted my camera and snapped a photo of the tiny maple leaf and its cicada friend, capturing the image the only way I knew how. As I continued turning the pages, I couldn't help but read snippets of guest comments. The most relaxing stay I've had in years. Couldn't have asked for better service from Inagi inns Okami and her staff. The gardens were superb, as always. I glanced at the dates. Nearly 30 years ago. My throat tightened and I closed the book gently. What had happened all those years ago? Why had the owner let everything fall apart when Yanagi Inn was clearly once such a special place, its gardens such an extraordinary feature? The questions gnawed at the back of my brain. I took one last look around the dated lobby, then stepped back up onto the tatami floors and into the dark hallways to continue my expedition. If only I'd had a chance to see the estate in its prime. How beautiful it must have been. I sighed. After a few moments of tiptoeing in silence, the sound of whistling struck up in the distance. I cocked my head. The song was familiar in a tickling-the-edges-of-my-mind kind of way. It was a sad tune, not at all the kind of song one would generally whistle for working, for I assumed it was one of the staff going about her daily duties. I finally approached an open doorway, a small, closed-for-cleaning wooden sign hanging beside it, leading to the baths. I pushed my way through the hanging cloth Norin with the symbol for hot water, Through the changing room and, still following the sounds of whistling, stepped through the doorway into the steamy bath area. Then I froze. Mom. Wearing a navy blue kimono, sleeves tied back, mopping. Mom. Whistling her favorite song, her unmistakable blonde hair pulled back in a loose ponytail, pushing a mop through the strands of wet hair slicking the tile floor. Ice water trickled down the back of my yukata, and goosebumps erupted down my arms. No, no, no. Not again. I bit back a sob and pressed the heels of my palms into my eyes, taking deep breaths and inhaling the inexplicable aroma of freshly peeled mandarins. Calm down, Mari. Calm down. It can't be, Mom. It can't be. I reopened my eyes. The woman was Yuna. Of course it was Yuna, in plastic sandals, scrubbing the tile floors around the baths with a wet mop. I let out a long, slow breath. What the hell is wrong with me? I couldn't blame lack of sleep or jet lag or sleeping pills this time. I practiced my breathing techniques, brought my heart back under control, one hand braced on the doorframe. Thank God, Yuna hadn't seen me yet. Yuna's dark hair was tied back and covered with a bright red tenugui, and her cheeks were rosy from her exertion in the warm room. The water droplets on the tiles glistened, and for a moment it was as if time stood still, and in slow motion I lifted my camera to capture this perfect moment. I don't know if she heard the flutter of the camera or if she just sensed my presence but Yuna turned and looked up at me, her surprise warming into a smile. She leaned against the propped-up mop and wiped her forehead with the back of her hand, posing as the stereotypical hard-working housekeeper. I laughed, my anxiety evaporating, and I snapped a few photos before she relaxed into laughter herself. I hope it's okay if I take a few photos. I guess I'll have to get signed releases from the staff at some point. Of course, but I thought you'd be out photographing the grounds again today. The laughter died on my lips, but I forced a smile. I was, but I thought I'd take some interior photos too. It's okay if I scout around inside, right? Well, I'm not sure there's much to photograph inside. Besides me, of course. Una posed again with the mop, throwing up a peace sign and winking. I smiled and obligingly took another flurry of photos. I better get back to work. Ogura-san will kill me if she thinks I'm playing around instead of cleaning. I leaned against the doorframe and watched her scrubbing tiles a while longer. Memories of scrubbing the floors in the international school I attended as a child floated to mind. Funny how the teachers decided that making the kids clean the school was one of the Japanese traditions they wanted to maintain. Want some help? I pulled off my camera and hung it from a wooden towel hook on the wall, then began rolling up the sleeves of my yukata. Yuna turned back toward me, eyes wide. You're joking, right? A vague frown appeared on her face. I I have a lot I need to get done. Not at all. I enjoy cleaning. It's therapeutic to give something a good scrub. I kicked off my slippers and held out a hand for her mop. But Ogura-san, she looked toward the doorway, brow furrowed, as if her boss might appear at any moment. A twinge of anxiety shot through me, but I forced a smile and patted Yuna on her mop hand. Oh, who cares what Ogura-san thinks, I said with more confidence than I felt. She relinquished her mop with a chuckle and a shake of her head. I set to work, mopping the tiles with a vigor I hadn't felt in a long while, soon building up a fine sweat in the moist heat of the room. The movements felt energizing, satisfying, like scratching an itch. I wasn't lying when I told Yuna I found a cleaning therapeutic. I just rarely did it. Yuna had been watching me from inside the empty bath as she wrung out some cleaning rags. You're an interesting woman, Marisan. Not at all what I was expecting. Oh? I paused in my vigorous mopping, wiped my soy sauce-stained sleeve across my forehead. And what kind of woman were you expecting? I'm not sure. Ogura-san said... Yuna broke off, turned away for a moment like she was too occupied with a stubborn stain on the edge of the bath. Well, I wasn't expecting a guest to help me with my chores but I do appreciate it. She lowered her voice, leaned toward me. Ogura-san does tend to overload me with tasks sometimes. It does seem odd to have you scrubbing this whole place. Has anyone even used the baths recently? Well, it's the off-season now, but usually we have a couple regulars who come in and bathe a few times a week. Yuna waved her wash rag dismissively, as if a few patrons a week were normal for a ryokan of this size. I stopped mopping, turned my full attention back to Yuna. But what has happened to this place? Why are the gardens so overgrown? I saw an island, and there used to be a bridge, but it's gone, and the grass is so high. I gestured with exasperation toward the high overhead window looking out to the gardens. Yuna sighed, dropped her rag in the bucket, but didn't look up to meet my gaze. I did hear the inn used to be very popular, bustling with guests, but that was before my time. She reached into the bucket, squeezed out the soapy rag. I've heard the owner has bad memories of that island, but I've never pried into her reasons. What kind of bad memories would make a businesswoman turn a bustling vacation destination into the vacant shadow of a resort it was today? Do you know when the owner will be back? Back? Yuna cocked her head. When she'll come here to the inn so I can talk to her. Yuna turned away again, idly rubbed her rag against the wall of the tub. I really couldn't say. I felt my heart begin to sink, but then I gripped my mop tighter. No, this was good. Maybe without the owner around, I'd have more freedom. Are there any other routes out to the island? I'd love to visit it. Yuna shook her head. I wouldn't know. Since the owner prefers it left alone, we leave it alone. Her tone carried a finality quite at odds with her usual happy-go-lucky nature. I nodded, though I was hardly satisfied with that answer. Something about that island called to me, drew me in like a flame drew in moths or cicadas. Una was watching me, and I realized I must have been staring into space, the buzzing cicadas dancing on the edge of my consciousness. I shot an embarrassed smile at her and started mopping again. The wooden handle was rough in my hands, and I wondered if Yuna's palms were blistered from her work here. But I kept mopping, feeling the muscles in my arms and shoulders warming up. If I needed a band-aid later, it'd just be a reminder of scrubbing the bath together with Yuna, of sweating through the thin fabric of my yukata, of my body feeling more alive than it had in a long, long time. That night, I woke up shivering, grasping for the blanket I must have kicked off in my restless sleep. I sat up in the dark, unable to reconcile any of the vague shapes in the room around me. After a moment, the fog cleared. Oh, the inn. I fumbled at the foot of the bed until I found the thick comforter, pulled it up over my shoulders, and closed my eyes again. But sleep wouldn't return. Events from the day played through my mind. From the good, scrubbing the baths with Yuna, to the bad, encountering Ogura while ankle-deep in cold pond water. Remembering Yuna's cheerful expression as she posed for my pictures brought a smile to my face, even as I lay sleepless in the night. Not all the inn's charms rested in its forgotten gardens. As I sifted through the day's images and the old guestbook's achingly obsolete reviews flipped through my mind, a sound of soft whimpering arose in the distance. The whimpering was quiet but in an unsettling way, as if the source of the sound was being muffled, smothered by some large, unseen hand. My ears strained for more, my eyes now wide open and staring into the darkness. Could it be Yuna? I propped myself up on my elbows, my heart racing. I tilted my head, allowing the rise and fall of the whimpers to roll over me. No. After being with Yuna so much that day, I began to doubt it was her. Not only did it lack the cheerful energy Yuna exuded, but the very tone and timbre were not Yuna's. But if it wasn't Yuna... Then who? Or what? I shivered. Dark-winged shadows flitted through my brain. But then an image of the graceful white crane, gliding over the water of the pond and settling into the nest on her desolate island, rose to my mind. And I wondered, could those sounds be the lamentations of the lonely crane? This thought melted my fear into a much gentler, poignant ache, and I settled back under the comforter, flexing my icy feet under the blanket until they began to feel warm again. Soon the crying faded, or else I fell back asleep. For the next thing I knew, it was 5 a.m., and I was wide awake once again.
0: Not quite the work trip Marie anticipated, is it? What were those mysterious sounds? Why did the crane lead Marie to the island? And what happened almost 30 years ago that led to the inn's decline? I'm dying to know. Stay tuned if you are too. So, don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. And if you don't want to miss a beat, listen to The Secret Garden of Yanagi Inn now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. You can find Amber A. Logan and Camcat books on social media by checking out the link in our bio. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on Camcat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here but the subsequent episodes will only be available for free listening for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our background episodes where we interview our authors and have them participate in fun writing challenges. Before you go, Please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.